I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. In a 2013 book chapter, Professor Ross Parry defined some leading British national museums as post-digital, as sites where digital had become normative and where digital is no longer societally emergent and technologically nascent. He continued, We can see how, in these institutions, digital has been captured in the language and logic of the organisation's mission, built into the organisational shape, organised into new blended roles and means of production, and socialised and argued for deep into their strategies. Together, what we can evidence here is not a universal change for the museum sector as a whole, but rather illustrations of a range of, in this case, British national museums, where digital appears to have become captured and assimilated to such an extent that we can term its use normative, with all the connotations that word brings with it. It's no small coincidence that Ross is my academic mentor at the University of Leicester and my work seeks to expand upon, a decade later, the claims he made then. Science Museum Group was included in the 2013 research that Ross did and, as we have seen throughout this series, it is clearly a post-digital museum. Digital practices and processes are pervasive, ongoing and continuous here. This fact has enabled me to ask deeper, more forensic questions about what digital labour looks like on a day-to-day basis than I might be able to in a different museum with less post-digitality in its makeup. Since Ross's chapter on the post-digital museum was published, the sector has faced many intersecting crises. Digital looks very different now to how it did in 2013. Then, we wouldn't have been able to articulate new, hidden, distributed and legacy digital labour in museums in quite the same way, if at all. Then, Ross said it was time to develop a different lexicon of terms for the role and impact of technology in museums. In this episode, we're going to explore the final term I've found in digital labour practices at Science Museum Group, the term collective. Emerging forms of digital labour at the group are inherently, excitingly, collective. I mean collective at a scale and scope that just didn't exist before. Digital labour doesn't involve only one person sitting in front of a screen, but rather a collaborative effort undertaken by people acting as a group, with multiple individuals, machines and processes all working in tandem. Through collective digital labour, Science Museum Group has drawn a through line between digital activities and new, more participatory ways of doing STEM heritage, of enabling science capital. Okay, so I think all digital outlets are are a collaboration. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it requires, because you require lots of different specialist skills. That's why so much of what we're working on now seems to be about bringing together kind of multidisciplinary teams mm-hmm. to deliver a kind of digital impact and reach. That's John Stack, Director of Digital for Science Museum Group, highlighting the fundamentally collaborative aspect of digital work in museums. Shortly, we're going to hear how much digital labour cultivates and relies upon a collective spirit, a spirit premised upon decentralised, collaborative, inclusive and participatory ways of working with and through technology to do museum work a spirit that has profound effects for both museum workforces and for visitors. Here's Jessica Bradford, Keeper of Collections Engagement, explaining how digital content enables new forms of co-curation of collaborative storytelling with audiences. Um, It's it's as much about, as I was saying earlier, sort of opening the door to the potential of our collection Telling stories as a way of really indicating what's possible, but not sort of finishing the narrative. There's no sort of full stop. In this, the last episode of this series, I want to focus entirely on the incredible work of Science Museum Group's volunteers. During my travels across the group's museums, it was in the activities of some of the 900 plus volunteers that I found the most exciting instances of collective digital labour. These instances enabled fresh, more fluid conversations between the inside and the outside of the museum, promoting new forms of creative participation with the group's collection. Um, What I've always enjoyed is being in the NRM and and meeting other volunteers. Uh, I've met guys who drive or used to drive steam engines and locomotives. I've met people who are signalling experts and run signal systems and... um, there's so many brilliantly clever people in that museum. Mm. Um, you realise just how much experience the volunteer workforce um, brings to brings to the party, if you like, and um, that's really good. So whether they can do IT or not, they've got some fantastic experience to, to tell and stories to tell and history to um, that they're part of. That's Brian Gardner, long-standing volunteer at National Railway Museum, who over the years has undertaken some brilliant digital work to assist the development of the volunteer programme for the group. We'll be hearing more from Brian shortly. First, to set the scene, let's hear from Matt Hick, Head of Volunteering for Science Museum Group. I guess kind of when I joined as, as volunteer coordinator, we had about 12,000 or 15,000 hours volunteer support across the organisation. Last year before COVID, we had 103,000 hours wow. worth of support. And that doesn't really do justice to what those volunteers do yeah. in that, that time. Um, so in any given year, they'll raise around about a quarter of a million pounds worth of actual income through paid for events, things like the miniature railway, steam rides, power up, that they're, they're all absolutely uh, vital to supporting. Um, you know, here at the NRM, they play a major role in uh, restoring the collection, working with collections items. They're obviously a huge, huge part in terms of uh, visitor engagement, answering inquiries, providing visitor support. But Beyond that, they provide support in office-based roles, digital roles, right the way across the organisation, and so we, we've got we've got a, we've got an, an absolutely um, fantastic team 
of, of mm. volunteers who make an incredible difference to to our museums and you know we've got here by putting in place a, a strategy that really focused on the operational benefits of volunteering so what volunteers could provide to us as an organization last year um, we made a really kind of important shift in terms of our volunteering strategy and one that now sees us look far more at the strategic and social impact we can make through our volunteer programs and what I mean by that is you know we're thinking about how volunteering contributes to our own ambitions around being open for all so diversity and inclusion, how it supports our ambitions to build science capital, um, and beyond that, you know how it contributes to our ambitions around placemaking. How can we, through our volunteer programmes, make a real difference to the lives of people in our local communities? And that means doing things radically different as an organisation. It means not just focusing on the operational benefits of volunteering. It means thinking more about who we engage, who we involve in our programmes, the types of opportunities that we offer. Um, the enrichment and engagement, um, so the training and support that we provide to those volunteers that, that come in, so that after they've finished volunteering with us, they leave not only with a you know having had a great experience, but with skills that, that they can then take into the wider world, and we'll support them. And digital has got a huge, huge part to play mm. in that. You know, it was really from 2015, 16 that we started to think about ourselves as a group, to think yeah. of the, about the way that we we functioned. We then saw the introduction of inspiring futures which really articulated our vision as an organization and how that vision would be implemented what you know what that strategic framework would be that we were that we were implementing and and that then allowed us to think differently about volunteering because that we had a real clear vision about what we were trying to achieve as an organisation and it was clear to, to us or it became clear to us as we started to work up our volunteering strategy about how we could support some of those ambitions to grow our audience, build science capital, harness the power of digital and perhaps most importantly from our perspective become open for all and um, what we have is we have a, a group wide volunteering uh, strategy that sets the direction of uh, travel uh, for the group provides the strategic framework each of our sites then has a local volunteer development plan that reflects the local issues needs and challenges of a site and uh, and essentially responds to those needs and challenges so um, the site's plans will be different but broadly speaking will reflect that wider group strategy and that's allowed us to move forward and to go from where we were in 2015 to kind of more than double participation in that time mm. um, massively increase um, satisfaction levels um, increase the impact that volunteers uh, were making uh, for the group A good example of the local volunteer development plans that Matt refers to is that of Locomotion in Shildon Here's Sarah Price, Eileen Atkins and Simon Walsh who we first heard in episode 4 describing why a unique plan for the museum at Shildon is so important and the significance of digital engagement within that plan. The closure of the wagon works in the 1980s hit Shildon really, really hard. It was a single industry town. You take away that industry. Um, so I think there is, there is that, and for some people that's a... Like the connection to the rail is, is there's a lot of emotion attached to that. However, there is immense pride in Shildon um, as well about the role that they've 
played in the um, in the railway story. I think the other thing that I noticed when I started here is that we can't just be like um, a nostalgia look back on the railways. Mm-hmm. Some people love that about this kind of museum and they want to see the big steam engines and they want to see all of that stuff. But the fact that we sit here in Shildon, there, there is a really good reason why the museum's here. Mm-hmm. So when we're, when we're looking at the redevelopment, it, it's about kind of the importance of Shildon and the wagon work and, and what story that's told alongside mm-hmm. these vehicles mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, but we can't, it's, it's just this fine balance because mm-hmm. we, we also can't go too much the other way and talk about the closure of the works and no. things uh-huh. either. So no. it's such a sensitive topic yeah. for the children. It's about, I think for me, like if, the more we can do that talks about how Shildon has always been this centre of innovation and creativity and ingenuity um, and those, those are skills that people have, sometimes they just don't realise them. Um, you know, but it all goes into that. You know, inspiring futures. You know, the SMG thing. Um, you know, working with schools, working with the UTC, and working with the young volunteers, and going. The railway industry is still a really vibrant industry. It's it's growing. There's this massive shortage of engineers. You know, you can participate um, in this. You can be part of the future. Yeah. And we've talked about pipelines into volunteering as well, haven't we? So we're, all, we're connecting the dots between different groups we're working with and then trying to encourage them to come on that journey with us in terms of how they're involved in the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, volunteering might not be the thing that everybody wants to do, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I think um, what says on the, the passion for children, like our current volunteer club, quite a lot of them, are children, wagon works... Uh, alumni, from the better word, um, and, and they, they're dead passionate about the place. Um, and I think the museum can really function as a kind of conduit to start conversations between them and the next generation. Because, yeah. I mean, we're kidding yeah. ourselves, we think there's lots of people in the show, like everyone in the show comes to the museum regularly. There's parts of the show that probably haven't even thought of this as a place to go. And if we can link our passionate volunteers who adore children and worship it and, and celebrate everything it does, with those people who live in children now who think that it's kind of a, a bit of a dead end sort of place, and like actually there's a lot going on here and too much more we can do, um, and you know, we could act as that kind of link, that bridge between mm-hmm. the two communities then. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things our community volunteers we're working on is creating kind of packages for different audiences. So if we're going into a care home or if we're going to school or into the local mm-hmm. library that we have kind of like a mixture of there might be some digital stuff that can be downloaded and shown to people on iPads and things or some printed stuff but we have a bank of stuff that is, it's almost like it's, it's kind of like enriches the interpretation mm-hmm. that will be there without bombarding people with loads and yeah. loads of information because mm-hmm. some visitors want one all of that, they want it on quite a surface yeah. level, mm-hmm. and then others will be really tempted just to dig down and we've got different ways for them to be able to do mm-hmm. We heard previously about how the Locomotion team works with volunteers to co-produce new forms of accessible digital content with iPads, more directly meeting the needs and interests of the community in Shildon. As Matt Hick explains, if new digital activity undertaken with and by volunteers is to fulfil its central aim, to promote diversity and inclusion inside and outside the museum, then the museum service needs to think laterally about what it takes to participate as a volunteer. 
you know, our ambition is to diversify our volunteer program and to create an inclusive environment. And we know that although the model that we currently have, which broadly speaking is based around longer term volunteering, is fantastic um, for us it, it gives us what we need operationally and it's great for those people that volunteer it only serves a very narrow demographic and, and actually we need to, to therefore change our model of volunteering mm. um, and that means thinking about the length of service and the way that we structure roles so actually short-term volunteering different hours uh, that people can volunteer with us although changing those makes it easier for a much broader range of people to volunteer but equally so does um, structure kind of rethinking the types or models that we use as well so um, you know digital volunteering mm-hmm. um, visitor volunteering so actually you know creating gateway roles where you as a, as a visitor to one of our museums could volunteer maybe just do a, a bit of cataloging or something with one of our on site for half an hour you know it serves us as an organization because it gives you that really deep connection with the connection with the collection in a way that you wouldn't get as a traditional visitor but it equally provides a gateway into a lot more longer term volunteering potentially mm-hmm. into our events program potentially into digital program or, or even the long-term volunteer program as well so we need to start thinking about all of these things it's more about how we empower our supporters in inverted commas to engage with us and actually so it's about kind of handing that digital content creation over to our visitors you know and, and engaging them in what i would call kind of gateway volunteering opportunities so this is like, you know, okay, so why not be, you know, sign up as a digital volunteer. On this day, we want as many of you to come into the museum and just start photographing and tagging your favourite content around the museum. You know, it doesn't even need to be as rigid as that. But all of a sudden, you've potentially got, you know, hundreds of people that might just come in for the day, photograph, you know, digital content. And it's and it's a really kind of low barrier, flexible volunteering opportunity, creates high volume uh, digital content that is um, that, that that promotes the, the museum and the museum's collection. It help you know it helps open up the collection. You know build our audience. Um, helps build science capital if people start to engage with that content. And it's and it's and it's all done through, I guess, kind of activating people power. And it, and it's not you know and, and so they're the sorts of things that we really should be looking at developing that low level easy engagement everybody's got a mobile phone everybody can kind of get involved if, if they want to um, and then for, you know from my point of view using that to, to actually for those people that are doing that kind of uh, that kind of volunteering to say actually oh well did, did you know we've got this uh, we've got Coda Dojo uh, coming up you know short term volunteering digital projects or you know um, you know we've got an, a Manchester Science Festival why don't you come along and so it, it helps us to kind of build that really low level mm. easy access um, volunteering and when we tie that back to our ambitions around open for all it becomes hugely important because the fewer barriers that you have to volunteering the more people are likely to get involved so we don't do much of of that kind of stuff we still want to recruit people formally and part of what we're looking at doing with the new strategies is thinking about how we can really easily remove those barriers to to volunteering you know and, and make our programs less formal because the less formal they are the easier it is for people to get involved when i met with matt 
He told me how the 2018 book New Power, written by Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans, had influenced his thinking around volunteering and participation in the digital age. I'm grateful to Matt for recommending this book because it has helped me frame much of the recent digital-first volunteering that has been so successful at Science Museum Group as a kind of new power in action. The digital volunteering that we hear about in this episode has many new power qualities. It is often informal, requiring an initial short-term opt-in involvement, which frequently evolves into something richer, longer-term and more meaningful. It is collaborative, open-sourced, radically transparent and involves a kind of maker culture, a do-it-ourselves ethic. If we reflect on the digital labour I have profiled in this podcast through the lens of new power, from the collecting meme project undertaken by Aaron and Philip, to the One Collection initiative or the Heritage Connector and Congruence Engine research projects, Wasim's work with Google Analytics or Tony and Kathy's Twitter exhibitions, we begin to see all of these as new power examples, premised upon the collective, upon crowd wisdom, and upon seeking to open up the world and Science Museum Group's collection to let others join in. So, I want to suggest that digital labour in the group either involves or introduces a new power philosophy, quietly disrupting some of the old power principles that were foundational in all of today's longest standing museums the more formal, managerial, exclusive aspects, predicated upon an unwavering belief in the expertise of curators and on the long-term affiliation and loyalty of established audiences. While I let this idea settle, I want to introduce Brian Gardner, an inspiring member of the volunteer community at National Railway Museum, who, over the years, has been involved in a wide range of digital volunteering projects for the group. Um, I joined the NRM in 2012 and prior to that, between 1967 and, ni- and 2006, um, I was in the Army. So I was in the Royal Corps of Signals and um, in, uh, in 1967 I did a three-year apprenticeship um, as a technician um, and then throughout the next 39 years, which seems an awfully long time when you say it, um, I progressed at, from being a technician through... Um, some very, some much uh, more technical training and um, management training in terms of managing workshops, managing technicians, sorting out problems, etc. Until I retired in two thousand six. In two thousand three, um, I got pretty sick, um, and I, my health took a bit of a nosedive. Um, and the army was brilliant, actually. I, have to, I should say, uh, looking after me and, and allowed me to stay um, in the army until I until I retired. So, um, but that that health issue meant that I couldn't carry on in my profession, which was electronics and electrical engineering. So, um, I came out of the army um, and sort of for a while I was a civil servant with the passport office, uh, but. But my health didn't really like that either. So I, I decided just to retire um, and I took up volunteering because it seemed like, uh, and it's proved to be true, it seemed like a good thing to do in terms of finding out new things, looking at, at meeting new people, doing something completely different, um, which was 
interesting. I, I came along for an interview, which is well, an assessment really, with Matt and um, one of the curators who was a, a railway curator. Um, and at that time, they uh, the NRM had a couple of big warehouses just behind the museum, uh, which were chock full of um, all sorts of stuff. Um, and they wanted to do, to complete um, an audit of signalling equipment, signalling hardware. So things like um, signal box levers um, and, and all the kit that goes around that, signal box communications, um, signals. And if you picture a railway line with a signal that goes up and da- up and down like a big arm, um, it's called a semaphore, I now know. <laughs> um, but they wanted me to go round those two sort of warehouses and inside the museum as well to find every bit of kit that there was uh, to do with that kind of stuff. Um, and I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And they wanted it all documented and uh, and everything. And the, another volunteer who was a complete expert on such things, uh, he, he was with me because otherwise I wouldn't have known A from B really. Um, and he was brilliant. He, he explained every single thing to me but I photographed everything recorded it into a put it into a spreadsheet and then created spreadsheets uh, on different sections of what I'd seen um, to enable the curator to um, to do his thing which was basically creating those spreadsheets I didn't realize it at the time I mean, for me it was just a case of this is what they want me to do so I did it um, but uh, but and Matt and the curator I was working with, Russell, um, they were they weren't very pleased with what I did in terms of the spreadsheets because I, you know, I embedded photographs and and notes and all that kind of stuff, which um, which was turned out to be really useful to them. And I, it, so they, that's where I suppose if I got a bit of I've got the credibility, if you like, um, and it just took off from there. I I got involved in all sorts of stuff. There was a there's um, a system, a commercial system that the security people have where a volunteer um, swipes into the museum. We always, we all have to swipe in with a card, a special card you put around your neck. Um, and that record, we they use that to record um, not personal hours, but volunteer hours in general um, to make, to, because that's a very valuable st- stat to have. Um, but that commercial system recorded the hours in days and minutes, uh, and Matt needed the hours in uh, in hours. So I, <laughs> what I did, um, again, I thought it, I just kind of did it, but um, it was create a macro to convert from the commercial uh, output to convert it to what they needed in in the group. Um, and that worked really well, and I was really proud of that one. So that was a spreadsheet job as well, and recording it manually, really. Um, and I and up until the point when I was able to help convert it, um, I was helping to kind of manage those spreadsheets. But it was very laborious stuff, and um, mm. so we decided to try and make it a bit faster, which we were able to. And I, I got I, I had a lot of help from the ICT team as well. A chap I went down to London to see, and he helped me tidy up the macro and, and get some of the coding in, in good order. So um, 
and it's as far as I'm aware, they're still using it. So that was that was quite good. I was quite proud of that. Uh, and Matt knew I was keen to do things and knew I was happy to, you know, take on new things. Um, so he asked me if I would help produce the uh, SMG volunteer newsletter during the pandemic, which we and we published that every two weeks. So uh, and I did that using a commercial application. And it was really good because I, it actually made me, I was able to find my way around all sorts of things um, by sitting at the computer at home and not getting, and, and when everything was closed down. Here's Matt talking about what Brian's activities signify for volunteering generally at the group and for digital volunteering in particular. With Brian, he's amazing, isn't he? Uh, you've met him, um, yeah. Brian. Yeah, <laughs> if he's listening back to this, <laughs> he is. Uh, you are amazing, Brian. Um, I am very, first of all, very fortunate to uh, you know not only call Brian a volunteer, but but a friend. But I think um, I, I suppose it's worth just talking about how um, Brian came to be um, such a a star really in terms of digital engagement and his work in digital because he hasn't always been involved in that that's not how that's not why he joined and started um volunteering here and i think you know this, it's important in terms of the way that we work as volunteer engagement professionals so brian joined us as to work on a collections rationalization project right so uh, uh, it was working um so just kind of doing kind of spreadsheet work with a curator um uh, to kind of uh, help with the rationalisation of our signalling collection here, yeah. uh, and when that uh, program um, ended, um, there was nothing else I don't think within the curatorial team to do, and um, so Brian got involved in our uh, newsletter here, and um, so he was so Brian and I worked quite closely together on that for a number of years before I moved roles. But because of Brian's work on kind of spreadsheets, so he's, he's, I don't know if you got into this, but he's a bit of an Excel uh, guru. And um, yeah. one of Brian's, I guess, kind of many, many talents is he um, he's just willing to learn. He will just learn. Real-time interrupt here, but isn't this reminiscent of what we were discussing in episode four when we considered the distributed digital labour of Science Museum Group staff many of whom had a strong self-directed learning component to their roles. We heard how there was a kind of continuous, peer-led, interest-driven learning going on through working with new digital platforms and processes. Brian's career as a volunteer at National Railway Museum also indicates this, through a combination of personal interests, supportive relationships and opportunities, as well as access to information and social connection through digital devices, his own connected learning has been consistently taking place. So when we started working together, he didn't probably know much about Excel, and um, he, or he may well have learned something uh, on, his, on his project, but we did two projects. So we were moving from our database from all these different spreadsheets um, into uh, a new uh, database build and so Brian got involved in that so that was how he kind of got involved I guess with me and the digital work so I brought him into my team as I moved um, 
roles. Um, so he so he started to kind of develop all that kind of knowledge, and then he, it, then we have a, a signing in system here, whereby volunteers come in, they swipe in through a signing in system, and what we wanted to do was take the information out of that system into another spreadsheet and, and automatically calculate all our hours because uh, it just takes forever to work all of this stuff out um, by hand. And so Brian just went away and learned how to write all the code and all of this kind of stuff. You know, way way above uh, me. And so, you know, so as digital projects kind of came up, Brian was just the perfect person to yeah. get involved. And I and I kind of guess from a volunteer management perspective, we we find it really easy as a profession you know right we need a role and people can't do it unless we get a role and actually we've got to jump through all these hoops and we've got to make it really rigid and actually but actually do you know what if you find somebody amazing who wants to volunteer for you just take use their talents and you know work with them and um and and, he, and some really you know special special stuff can happen and and I think that's you know that that would be my kind of advice to anyone that's listening is you know let, let's not be so rigid as a profession. While Brian is a great example of someone who has been drawn to digital volunteering projects in the museum, he is also pragmatic that not everyone wants to do IT. At the moment, there's still a couple of generations worth of people, um, and younger people of course, but. Mm. Um, couple of generations worth of people who who just don't want to play it and and that's perfectly sense perfectly reasonable um and you you're never going to get everybody to to sign up to an account or be able to navigate the intranet or the internet or or and stuff like that and if you can't accept that then you it'd be a bit of a struggle well, I think when we talk about you know, creating great volunteering programs and experiences, is mm-hmm. it absolutely meets the needs of the organisation, but it meets the needs of the individual. And when you can find that perfect balance, you've absolutely sort of hit the sweet mm-hmm. spot. In 2014, Matt set up the Heritage Volunteering Group, a peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer, <laughs> a peer-to-peer network with the ambition of helping the sector unlock the power of volunteering. I guess kind of the first thing that's important to say is that people's motivations for volunteering online are different for volunteering in person. And that is hugely important. So one of the main reasons that people volunteer, if you look at the research from people like NCVO or even through our own recruitment data, is that they want to connect with people and they they want to meet people, they want to meet friends. And so that's not something that you're going to get through online volunteering if what you're looking for is um, experience or you uh, want to connect with an organization and you live a long way away then it is going to meet the needs of, of those people and so for me digital has a really po- important part to play in our volunteer programs but it is one type of uh, model of operation we shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of the only model mm. having said all of that Digital volunteering removes barriers to access. It is flexible. Um, you don't need to come into site. You don't need massive long inductions. You know, if you you can do it on your phone. You can you know, depending on what the nature of the project is, it offers us something. I think that the in person volunteering doesn't. And obviously, mm-hmm. we you know, there, there is of course the flip side of that, which is around digital exclusion, and people that don't have access to to the internet perhaps or don't have uh, mobile devices or or even in our case multiple mobile devices where you're needing to authenticate something else so that you know that, that create those barriers it's about kind of integrating digital volunteering into the wider volunteering offer because the more types of volunteering 
and models that you use, the, you know, the easier it is for people to access your program. Throughout the making of this podcast, I've had a strong sense that digital equity for museums starts with volunteers. This manifests itself, as far as I can see, in a few ways. One, it provides digital skills to volunteers, which they may not have developed previously. Two, digital storytelling undertaken by volunteers provides an important bridge to the community, as we saw in the case of locomotion. And three, digital activity undertaken by volunteers subtly challenges the organisation to consider its sense of ownership when it comes to its voice, infrastructure, collections and buildings. Matt, Brian and the team at Locomotion help me see that the closest the museum gets to responding to the issue of digital inclusion is through the volunteering programme. Science Museum Group's volunteering strategy enables activities and opportunities that ensure equitable access to and use of information and communication technologies for participation in social and economic life. Simply put, the group's volunteering offer is responding to a wider need for digital inclusion. It's really important because um, it gives me so much to do. I, I do lots of things, but I still I still do the number of hours that I'm, I'm expected to do as a, as a volunteer. But um, because of my health, I can't sit at the computer for eight hours a day on a, one day of the week and say, right, that's my volunteering done. What I tend to do is is I sit down for 20 minutes here or an hour there or, or half an hour somewhere else uh, and just do things when it suits me. Something new is always coming up. You know, I'm working on a project now to digitise forms for volunteers and the volunteering um, department, and it's a really interesting project, and I'm just being left to get on with it, which is, and it's really good. So, um, yeah, in my in my life, it, it has a good, a good place at the moment. Mm. There's lots of opportunities for volunteers going forward. You know, I think it's, as well as looking back, which is what people of my age do, it's also a great thing to look forward and, and just see what's coming around the corner. We want to create a diverse and inclusive volunteering programme where anybody, no matter what their background, could come to Science Museum Group and make a difference to themselves and to the museum. And that's that's the volunteer programme, that's the organisation that we want to become. Um, and, and we will do that and we, we've got a strategy in place to enable us to to get there. Digital will play a big part in that. It's an important part of our um, strategy. Um, we know we need to create more digital roles. We need to find more opportunities for people to engage with us through those roles. We need to make sure that it's easy for people to get involved because, like as we've talked about already, digital is a really low or can be a really low barrier way mm. to start volunteering. Um, to get, you know, if, if you're interested in skills development, then it's. Uh, then it, then it can provide that but equally it needs to be a part of a much wider and a much broader and a much more open program where people from all different backgrounds can come and find the experiences that they want we have an older work for, we have an older volunteer uh, program but we need to respect and value that that you know British society is aging rapidly we're on the back of a uh, we're approaching you know an age-related um tipping point where mm. you know local councils will be struggling to to 
to um, deal with age-related um, illnesses and issues. And we know volunteering can play a major part in keeping people active, keeping people socially connected, um, and maintaining people's well-being into old age. And you only need to walk around our volunteer programmes to um, to see that. So we we play a major part in that already, and we need to continue to do so in the future. What we need to do, though, of course, is to do more than that and that's really what the strategy Mm. is about and digital has got a big part to play in that The idea that digital equity starts with volunteers is certainly the case in the next example of collective digital labour we'll be hearing about this time through the group's partnership with Wikimedia UK According to the authors of New Power Wikipedia is, and I quote a new power model that remains a beacon of openness and democratisation, end quote. The question becomes, then, how does Science Museum Group shift and adapt when partnering with a new power model such as Wikipedia? So I'm Hope Miola and I work for SMG as a Wikimedia resident. I've been with them for about a year and a half, uh, maybe, or just under, and I basically handle all of the Wikipedia-related um, content and kind of stuff, as people call it. So that's anything from writing articles to editing articles that correlate with SMG's collections online to running uh, Wikipedia sessions and editathons for curators and volunteers and other kind of um, institutions around STEM and science. One aspect of Hope's role is to build continuity between the group's collections online and what is available on Wikimedia Commons. The Wikipedia project is kind of a small part of SMG's um, digital enhancements of digital outreach project. So they want to get as many people interacting and using their collections online um, website. I think it's only about five years old, their collections online um, website. So it's yeah. still very fresh, still very new. And it is doing great, um, but they'll just like more interaction. And with SMG's collection. It's very like one of a kind. No one else really has what they have. So it's a great way to let people know that SMG is a great resource for information and research and get people um, talking about STEM and science and all the different avenues that they can kind of explore and look at using their collections. And as the famous saying goes, like, one image is worth like a thousand words. Mm. <laughs> the more images that are up onto Wiki Commons, the more kind of traffic SMG gets back, the more people are kind of learning about all these different topics and objects and collections, and the more we can kind of do on the digital and digitization side of things. So it is a very great thing. It's a lot of work, but it's beneficial in the end because it will kind of create a new. I guess, interaction with SMG visitors as well, yeah. people who are enthusiasts or specifically interested in certain objects. So, yeah, it's a very exciting but daunting part of the project too. Something that's so inspiring about what you just said is it's like it's very direct, like it's an obvious way in which digital technology mm-hmm. is like enhancing and enabling a new form of access to the yeah. collection. And I was also thinking as you were talking there, like the mission of SMG is to increase science capital. Yeah. And here's a direct example of like digital technology and a particular 
internet platform being used in a direct way to build science capital and it doesn't really matter whether or not anyone ever sets foot in the physical mm. museum space would you say that's about right if it's online it's easily accessible to like thousands even millions of people at one go and they can really i think appreciate and learn more about it in that sense mm. because they can kind of easily get to it without having to necessarily like you said step into a museum mm-hmm. and have to like learn so it's great it also in terms of like people who have um physical disabilities where they can't get to a museum making this uh part of the collection accessible makes it easier for them because mm-hmm. they can look at it from home and they can learn and they can still kind of get that experience mm-hmm. of being in a museum and enjoying the collection without necessarily having to struggle so it takes a lot of boxes <laughs> yeah um, yeah which is great but we're in the National Railway Museum right yeah. now. Even in here alone, they've got something like three million technical drawings. I mean, it's mm-hmm. insane, mm-hmm. the collection. So I guess this question, actually, what I'm trying to ask you is, like, how do you decide which stories to tell? Like, do you have a strategy or a set of strategies at the moment? Like, you've mentioned a bit about women in STEM or, like, everyday objects or that science. Yeah. Like, how on earth do you decide what you want to... When you could focus on so many different things, mm-hmm. how do you... How's it working, like... I think Wikipedia kind of helps with that a lot because they set initiatives for themselves and targets or certain topics they'd like to focus on. And that helps with um, kind of translating that then into SMG. So, um, kind of the talks we had about things to upload or the collection that we wanted to put online was focusing on underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so women in STEM being one of those, mm-hmm. people from different class backgrounds, people with disabilities, looking at mental health. Um, that's a very big initiative um, on the Wikipedia side too. It's kind of an informational gap that they would like to fill. And the same with um, SMG. They have certain items or parts of objects in their collection that can help with that. So that, that's kind of a, one way we found a link. And also it's about certain topics that are kind of going on now. And uh, with Wikipedia as well, they're trying to kind of clear up the climate change talk and get rid of certain myths or certain kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, misinformation that could be out there about climate change so it's a big initiative for them and it's also a big initiative for us and again that is where we kind of found a link Uh, we also thought about um, things that were in SMG's collection that particularly weren't on Wikipedia Um, so this is again is kind of filling in informational gaps um, on Wikipedia that SMG do have and uh, I guess one good example is on Wikipedia, people write about things they're interested in. So you're going to find a lot of articles on like famous actors, musicians, but you won't find a lot of articles on like household appliances or kind of the mundane but essential parts of life. And mm-hmm. SMG have a great collection on kind of um, household objects and the history behind them. And that was another way we could kind of fill in that gap and help um, people realise kind of how 
lucky, I guess, we are to have certain technologies within our lives, but also learn the history behind them and also how they've changed and become more accessible to different people and how they've essentially become such an essential part of everyday living and everyday life. To my question earlier on, how does an institution such as Science Museum Group shift and adapt when partnering with a new power model such as Wikipedia? Hope provides an answer. Such a strategic partnership crucially serves the objectives of Science Museum Group's Open for All strategy, most notably the objectives around building an inclusive culture, creating places that are open for everyone, and engaging everyone with STEM. We heard Hope in episode one, introducing the Wikipedia volunteer training programme that she has been working on. So with the um, Wikipedia and SMG volunteering project, we wanted to kind of um, help the volunteers still feel part of Mm -hmm. SMG and the museums that they were um, volunteering at. Like, as you said, with the pandemic, a lot of the volunteers couldn't come into the museums, so therefore they were kind of out of the loop in a way, because um, a lot of volunteering work is you have to be physically in the museum. Sometimes you're helping with cataloging or you're coming in for like meetings and discussions. So when that's kind of taken away, they kind of, they don't really have much interaction with the museums except a newsletter maybe here and there. And with the digital side of the project, we wanted to kind of make them still feel part of SMG, still contribute their time and their hours to the collection that they're very enthusiastic about, and also um, get them thinking about new avenues of what museum work and what a museum job is. I think mm. when people think about museum jobs or museum work, they kind of think of like a curator working in the archive section, or being a visitor's system, or being a keeper they don't always kind of necessarily think about the digital aspect of it. Mm. So it's kind of another way to get them to explore the museum and the collection in a different sense. It also made it easier uh, for them to kind of work remotely. Sometimes um, volunteers can't make it into the museum, so they can't. They do want to be part of things, but they can't necessarily do juggling like work or other responsibilities. So the um, volunteering project and um, being online and digital, we, we record all our sessions so they can catch up and do all the work at their own pace and at their own time. And I think that's much more easier for them. And again, we're thinking about kind of like accessibility and making sure everyone has like a fair chance. It means a lot of people get to interact and do a lot uh, for SMG but within their own time and scope Mm. yeah sometimes life can be fast paced and working in a museum can be fast paced so this is kind of an easy paced project where they can kind of drop in and out, learn what they need to do and then explore other things and it also means it opens up the world of Wikipedia to them Wikipedia is like the sixth most used website in the entire world and English Wikipedia I believe is the number one Wikipedia used everywhere. So not only are they contributing to SMG and museums but they're also contributing to like a repository of knowledge and encyclopedic knowledge that 
potentially millions of people can access, which is very exciting. And when you think about a museum and how many people it can kind of reach, sometimes it's only a select few who can make it in for exhibitions or who can make it in for work. But here, they get to reach thousands and thousands of people just by simply contributing, like editing an article or um, embedding a link somewhere. So it's a very exciting and, I don't know, I think a very new project for SMG. We wanted the volunteers to structure the project. We didn't feel it would be right to kind of give them like a a structure or a handout or like this is what you need to do. We wanted them to feel as much involved in the project as possible and we wanted them to structure it themselves and they come in with like a whole new perspective because they don't know the system, they don't know how it works. I think one great example is um, one of the older volunteers. He went through SMG's collection and found objects that were firsts of their make. So like the first rubber duck ever invented, which is apparently in SMG's collection, or the first locomotive that travelled to, I don't know, Doncaster or Lincolnshire or something. And he created this whole new spreadsheet just on all of that research he'd done himself. And he was able to start then kind of creating articles and doing editing. Um, around all that research he'd done and I think if we'd given them a structure he wouldn't have gone out and like found mm-hmm. that great information mm-hmm. and also it's something we'd never thought about either uh, the way he explained it was usually when he goes onto Wikipedia or perhaps when other people go into Wikipedia they're usually looking for like the first source of information or the first thing of that kind and with SMG having kind of a lot of that in their collection, he said it just made sense to put it onto Wikipedia. Working with Wikipedia in this way has enabled creative agency amongst the volunteer workforce, empowering them to take part and respond to the Science Museum Group's collection in any way they wish. It's modelled a future of engagement with collections using digital technology, which is transparent, inclusive and open to all. As Jessica Bradford says at the beginning of this episode, there's no full stop. A lot of people don't realise how much of a source of information or the potential that it has to expand and to grow uh, within cultural heritage sectors. Um, We have so many editors and people working in recognised institutions that write and edit Wikipedia articles and There are so many um, policies and rules that make sure that the information you're getting is unbiased, it's fair, it's factual, it's correct, and that it's going to help the general public or whoever is reading this Mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's no longer just about people writing about their interests or their things and I think that's why Wikipedia or Wikimedia is dedicated to kind of filling in informational gaps or hosting editor pods to teach people and to get them to understand what a great resource of knowledge it 
is. That's like the power of Wikipedia. Mm. It gets you thinking about mm. things that you may not necessarily think about. It opens you up to new structures of information that you don't know is out there. And there's so many people doing hard work behind the scenes that we don't even know about what's happening. Mm. And that's the great thing I love about the partnership between SMG and Wikipedia is that they're willingly putting out their collections and their knowledge to be so easily accessible to so many people and to see how it grows and to see how it changes and to allow people to learn and then expand that knowledge even further. I think that's amazing and I don't know, it should be like a fundamental thing mm-hmm. in a lot of uh, people's like initiatives and organisations and not just in the cultural heritage sector but in anything that people do. Exploring partnerships such as this one help us see how institutions like Science Museum Group are opening up to new power values. They further strategic goals by advocating and enabling more informal, self-organised, collaborative opportunities for experiencing collections, at the same time becoming a valuable part of online knowledge exchange when it comes to wider issues of societal concern. There are many more examples of collective digital labour than I can profile here, not least the volunteer blogging and citizen science projects currently being propelled in parts of the group. What we can see clearly, however, is that through the organisation's work with and by volunteers, digital thinking is permeating all areas of the Science Museum group, even outside of exclusively digital projects. This has been seen particularly here in the new, more flexible rhythms and patterns of work undertaken by volunteers. For Ross Parry, this exemplifies the normativity of digital in museums, and I quote, signals the currency and legitimacy that digital carries, end quote. A long time ago, digital technology entered the grammar and logic of this institution, and it is here to stay. Let's return to Brian one last time. I've talked to a few members of staff based down in London who have also been at the museum as long as you were in the army, actually. And it's been so interesting. And I and I sort of think, you know, we can only cultivate some of the most exciting things, you know, for the future by by really focusing on the hard work, the legacy of the past, of the hard work that's Definitely. already been done. Definitely. I mean, my whole career in the army, it started off with me with log tables and then, uh, you know, doing maths with log tables and then and engineering in blog tables, and then slide rules, uh, and then great debate about whether we would be allowed calculators in exams, and then, oh, all sorts of changes in, you know, basic coding for computers, and I can remember when mobile phones came out, and we were we were using these great big brick things, you know, with an aerial sticking out the top, and that was a mobile phone at that time, and mm. I can remember doing satellite communications, trying to create video conferencing over some ridiculously unreliable communications link, whereas now it's all in my pocket and I can pull it out and use the phone, talk to my mate in Australia. So I guess that's a range of technology that I can look back on and think, well, actually all that has contributed to what is happening now with, I don't know, TikTok and and, and WhatsApp and, and FaceTime and all of those things were developed 
from some basic, very basic engineering and, and inventions. I like to go in the science room in particular and, and look at stuff um, from the 60s and 70s and 80s and, and well, all the way through uh, and just and you can actually see the development. And the, the Bradford Museum is, the National Science and Media Museum is just the same, just as good for looking at all that stuff. In fact, there's one room, you've probably been in there, where you walk across a display of computers and things in the flo- lit up in the floor. Yes, I think so. And, and yeah. I, and that's like walking across my life because that, that's the start to the start. That's where I began, and, and it kind of goes through. So it's really good fun. I love and, and it's great. So um, yeah, the future I think is look is really good. And um, uh, you know, in ten years' time, somebody will be saying, "No, oh, remember those rubbish iPhone sixes that we used to use." <laughs> I've tried in this series to take a comprehensive view of what digital labour looks like in as many of the nooks and crannies of the group as I could. I've attempted to reveal what digital labour in its various guises might mean for the future of work in cultural organisations such as this one. Rather than uncritically accept changes to working practices brought about through technological change, there is a need to be questioning of how digital labour is shifting experiences of cultural work from the kinds of hidden activities that are now commonplace, to the emotional aspects of this work, to the possibilities it opens for new kinds of curatorship, programming, expertise and participation. While I've understood there to be new, hidden, distributed legacy and collective forms of digital labour, we might do this study again and find 10 more suitable descriptors. That's how fast our working lives and our cultural lives are changing. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr. Sophie Frost. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Don't fly out.